What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit regarding Intravenous de Milo. This tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Well, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? The gospel according to... Spine so Intravenous de Milo, sort of an underrated Spinal Tap album. <laughs> of course you would say that. I think we can both agree it's not as bad as Shark Sandwich. Christopher Guest with Rob Reiner in a clip from 1984's This is Spinal Tap. This week we continue our 8 from 84 series with a look at three iconic rock movies from 84. Spinal Tap, Stop Making Sense, and Purple Rain. All that and more. Is this being recorded in Dudley? Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh and Adam here recording remotely, I think maybe in our history together on the show, eight years at this point. This is maybe only the second time we've done this, recorded it in separate places. Is that right? That's what I was going to say. The only one I can think of is when I was doing Ebert Interruptus a couple of years ago, and I believe we did a Sacred Cow of Rushmore. Yep. So you lowered your studio standards for a movie as great as Rushmore, which I appreciated. Absolutely. And we are going to plow ahead here. We wish everyone and their families the best of health. Of course, to those who are still going into work and you're providing essential services, not like this show, including medical workers and first responders, we do thank you. I'm going to assume, Josh, I can see you here in my little window on my computer screen that you did just emerge from your embryonic pod. Yes, (laughs) there was was a little trouble, uh, but thankfully, you know, B, the eighth grader, she grabbed the the flamethrower and got me out. So we're all good. (laughs) This week, we're going to get back into our 8 from 84 series with a rock trio. One, a blockbuster in its time, whose reputation has perhaps faded a bit. We will get to Prince's Purple Rain. The other two, while only very modest successes at the time, now recognized as the very best of their genres. Jonathan Demme's concert film, Stop Making Sense, featuring Talking Heads and this is Spinal Tap, the world's first rockumentary, if you will, directed by Rob Reiner. As we mentioned on the show last week, Josh, Purple Rain is a blind spot for you. It was. That has now been remedied. Are your eyes ever going to be the same? <laughs> well, I learned a lot, Adam. I, I've learned about, a lot about life, about love. <laughs> I, I think it was the perfect uh, distraction movie to sit down with this past Sunday night. So, yeah. I have now seen Purple Rain. (laughs) I cannot wait, and hopefully you will enjoy that conversation. It's all later in the show. But first... This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! We are going to kick things off with Film Spotting Madness, our annual bracket-style tournament. 64 films from the 2010s this year. Only one can reign supreme. And Josh, we are here. We are at the final four. Didn't we start this tournament like in... 
2018. I know we've been doing them annually, but it sort of feels this year's madness has been quite the journey. Absolutely. And part of that may be due to the fact that Sam and I, as the bracket makers, we got ahead of this a little bit and we did put some of the movies that we thought might end up making the big dance out to the public, out to the film spotting audience so they could do their homework ahead of time. That started, I think, actually a year ago. So it's been a process. We're getting down to the end of it. And of course, speaking of that, as we get closer to the end of Film Spotting Madness, we are going to have to start thinking about what next year's madness could be. Yeah, we don't have a topic. We had this three-year plan in effect, and now we're at a loss. So always open to ideas. And we've been getting a few of them, but we do encourage more ideas. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Voting in the final four round of this year's madness kicked off earlier this week. New rounds open every Monday. Filmspotting.net slash madness is where that happens. Before getting into those final four matchups, we want to share the Elite Eight results. Once again, over 3,000 votes cast in most of these matchups. And we're going to go in order here from the largest margin of victory to the smallest. So let's start with Parasite versus the Tree of Life. Tree of Life seated number three, Parasite number 11. And Parasite has been rolling. It beat The Babadook, Marriage Story, and Spike Jones's Her to get this far in the tournament. The Tree of Life, it's had a little bit of a harder road. It did overcome close matchups against Inside Out and Under the Skin. The easy matchup for the Tree of Life was probably in round two against Personal Shopper. Let's listen to a little bit of feedback before we share the results here. Craig Burrell, Parasite is a wonderfully well-crafted and politically astute film, but this is film spotting madness, which means we have to be serious. And we should probably note Craig's not being ironic here. It's all well and good, Craig says, to talk about the greatest films of such and such a period, or even the greatest films of all time. But there is another higher standard that we should also consider. The standard set by the greatest artistic achievements of all time in all media. I'm talking about the Divine Comedy and the Sistine Chapel and Macbeth. I submit that if the world of cinema has produced anything worthy to be considered alongside these masterpieces, then the Tree of Life just might be our best and most worthy candidate. Wow, Wow. big words from Craig. Colin says, Parasite is amazing, but... Echoing what Craig said, the tree of life is a spiritual experience. This is easy. One more comment here from Alex Garcia. Parasite is amazing, and the tree of life is a spiritual experience. That I did not feel completely. I probably would have voted for the tree of life if Dreyer had not existed, but Dreyer made or debt. Therefore, I voted Parasite. All right, let's get to the results. Yeah, it was a wide margin here, and it was Parasite, winning 68 to 32%. I got to say, recency bias has to be at play here. Don't you think, Adam? I don't know. Maybe a little bit, but I think that's the conventional wisdom right now. We are hearing that from a fair number of listeners. And I think maybe that does a disservice to Parasite and how good Parasite is. I guess I'm not sure I'm willing to say that whatever the number one film of 2019 was would have fared as well in Madness. I think it's how good of an achievement Parasite truly is. I guess I say that because of the disparity in the results, you sure. know, um, it, it definitely it's definitely a worthy opponent for the tree of life in my mind. But yeah, to womp it like this. Wow, that's something. Yeah, we have Ex Machina versus Mad Max Fury Road. Fury Road was our number one seed in the tournament. In other words, the movie we felt had the best shot of winning. The number 25 seed was Ex Machina, and it has been one of the tourney's biggest surprises. The Cinderella of the tournament, it won in a close matchup against Spider. Man into the Spider-Verse in round one, 
destroyed John Wick in round two, and then played the spoiler against Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread in The Sweet 16. Fury Road has performed very much as you would expect a number one seed to perform so far, dominating in matchups against Logan in round one, The Florida Project in round two, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in The Sweet 16. We got this comment from Big Dan T. Fury Road versus Ex Machina, a.k.a. maximalism versus minimalism. More is more or less is more. Do you like your dystopian outlook hyper-stylized or so close to home that it's near indistinguishable from our own world? I find the balance of 90% dialogue, 10% action in Ex Machina far more affecting and effective than the inverse found in Fury Road. I guess add me to the list of Ava's gullible victims, but I want to see her take the next step towards total domination. This from Patrick. I know I'm on the wrong side of this, as I am so many things, but Ex Machina was so interesting in what it says about humanity and feminism. Fury Road does too, of course. But wait, maybe I am wrong. Is this the same exact movie? They might be. (laughs) There are some similarities there for sure. But our listeners did not have a tough time with this one. The number one seed advances 65% to 35%. All right. Once again, justifying that number one seeding. Let's move on to Lady Bird versus Get Out. Get Out seeded number 10. Lady Bird seeded number 18. And it's been an exciting journey for the Greta Gerwig film. Came out strong, out of the gate strong against Scott Pilgrim versus the world in round one. Then this is probably, I think, the first upset. Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel falling to Lady Bird in round two. Slim there. Close vote. And then another upset when Lady Bird beat Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master in the Sweet 16. Get Out has had a little easier time. It won handily over Knives Out and first reformed before getting a bit of a scare in its Sweet 16 matchup against Denis Villeneuve's arrival. We got this comment from Jeremy Webna Berman. I am so very, very happy that Lady Bird beat the master. Good on you, film spotting community. Good on you. And now I vote for Get Out. (laughs) Here's Aaron Teachman in L.A. I think Lady Bird is one of the best coming of age films about the suburbs ever. But I'm a white guy from the suburbs, so I would think that. But the wider societal implications of Get Out, the power of the metaphor of the sunken place, and just the sheer satirical bite of the film force me to vote for it at least one more time. And... Aaron voted the way things eventually went. Get Out takes this one 55 to 45 percent. So we're getting a little closer, a little tighter here with these battles. And we culminate with the number five seed, Moonlight, up against the number four, The Social Network. Moonlight has had a pretty easy time of it beating the writer. Manchester by the Sea and even Richard Linklater's Boyhood without too much trouble. The Social Network has been rolling too. Its closest matchup was in round one versus Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. And since then, it's taken down Dunkirk in round two and Moonrise Kingdom in the Sweet 16. Here's Nick Melita. Every cinephile has those few films where you enter the movie theater as one person and you leave as another, forever changed. Moonlight was one such turning point for me, and it must live on. Andy says, The Social Network is, without question, my favorite film of the decade, and it's as important and representative of that decade as any film can be. Still, the notion of living in a world without Moonlight is an emotionally devastating thought. I have to do it. I hate to do it. Moonlight, you are wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And you will be missed. The social network gets my vote. We're really tearing listeners apart. And that's what I love about madness. One more comment here from Jake Scoobish. Making it to the Elite Eight isn't cool. You know what's cool? The final four. There it is. Well played, Jake. Over 3,000 votes cast. As we said, the margin on this one, Josh, only 14. 50.22 to 49.78. David Fincher's 
the social network moves on. Man, we had to use some real math on that one. And th- this is – I got to I gotta revisit the social network. Like it, but I would probably rank it a little bit lower among Fincher's films. And obviously, I'm missing something here. This would have been Moonlight for me, but um, have heard throughout Madness how much people do love the social network. And that one that, that's one that's stuck around for a long time. You know, it's yeah. the recency bias is not at work here. I was actually giving our producer, Sam, some grief earlier today because I can recall – when we were maybe about 75% through the process of making this film spotting madness bracket, maybe 80 or 85, the social network was a movie that was definitely in my top 15 seeds. I felt like it had to be there. And then Sam had to do that same exercise and the social network wasn't there. This movie that has now made it to the final four, he didn't even think should be among the top 15. I eventually convinced him it did. And he admits now that he feels a little silly in hindsight. He just thought, Everyone else listening was in the same situation he was, which is I haven't really thought about that movie since I last saw it and I haven't seen it since it came out. That's obviously not the case. So that does leave us with the final four Mad Max Fury Road, the number one seed, the social network, which was a four seed and then get out number 10 seed and parasite number 11 seed. How about the matchups? Who's facing off against whom? Well, Fury Road is going to face social network, which means get out is going up against parasite. So of course, in hindsight, you could completely redo the tournament and get everything to fall in line with how it came out. The only thing I think I wish we could have done differently is made the social network like the number two seed. I think the top four seeds are correct. Mad Max Fury Road, The Master, Tree of Life, and The Social Network. I would just slightly redo that order because then we'd have a situation where maybe in the final matchup, you could see Mad Max Fury Road going against The Social Network to win it all. As it is, one of them is going to go down here in the semifinal and one of those films, Get Out or Parasite, is going to move on. You guys decide that. You can vote now. Filmspotting.net slash madness. We do want to take a look at the prediction leaderboard. We had 678 listeners submit brackets. And after the Sweet 16, we've got yet another new name up at the top, our third leader in as many weeks. We had Costa, who now has dropped down to 27th. Our week two leader, Justin Tafe, dropped down to 72nd. And our week one leader, Mark Chaplin, is down to 161st. That means our new leader, is Eric Peterson. This is Eric. I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and have been listening since 2007. No Country for Old Men was the first show I listened to, and I haven't stopped. I appreciate all you guys do to entertain the world between the show and the fun slash not-so-fun games like Madness. Many tough choices have been made already, and there's only a few more to go. I voted for John Wick over Carol, so I'm mailing you my (laughs) film spotting card. (laughs) We will keep an eye out for that, Eric. Eric did pick all four of the final four correctly. He has Fury Road and Parasite advancing to the final with Fury Road winning it all. Actually, about 30 listeners of those 678 picked the correct final four. None of them are us, Josh. Yeah, I I was going to say, can you imagine that? Because I can't. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's tough. And you definitely can't because we're going to hear where you have fallen. You are in the sunken place of our film spotting madness bracket uh, tournament. Me here, I thought things were you know turning around know. for me after last year not being in last place. I got out to a strong start in this year's tournament, and yep, I've sunken. I've sunken indeed. Me, you, Sam, our producer, and Mike Merrigan, the founding father of Film Spotting Madness. He's the first person who gave us this crazy idea for such a bracket tournament, and Mike 
is in first place now, 131st overall. He has three of the four final four correct and 156 possible points remaining. I am now in second place, 194th overall. I have two of the four final four and 135 points left. Sam in 234th place. He's got two of four correct and 148 possible points remaining, which means you, Josh, are in last 256th. Despite getting two of the four final four correct, you only have 98 possible points remaining. Which means no chance to win. Uh, just, just clarifying here. I can clarify. I wish I could build up some suspense, tell people that they should tune in for the next week or two, but it's over. You're going to lose this. So, you know, normally the prospect of the punishment watching an Adam Sandler Netflix film, these right now, these days, it doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's like, sure, what else? Why not? What else could go wrong? Add it to the list, right? So Mike has Get Out versus The Social Network in the final. I had Mad Max Fury Road, which I could still get right as the winner, but I had it going against Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. You had The Master winning it all. You could get its competition correct, The Social Network, if it advances. And Sam is in the best position of all of us. It's looking like he's got a real shot at winning this Mad Max Fury Road versus Parasite in the final. Impressive, Sam. It is. If you submitted a bracket, you probably know where to check to see how you're doing. Look for the View Bracket link on the Madness homepage and then click on the Predictions link. In early voting, are either of our matchups close? We're going to tell you they are not. We have two Mm. films running away with it on their way to the final. So we'll look forward to those results and a new round next week. Again, final four voting is open until Monday, March 30th. The polls close at 11 a.m. Central Time. We'll give you then that championship match, and there will be that battle for third place opening at noon filmspotting.net slash madness. There is always more madness and the place to find it is on our Patreon page. That's where we started the film spotting invitation tournament for film spotting family members there on Patreon. This is basically a 32 film bracket that's made up of the films that didn't make the madness tournament proper. So the movies that we heard a lot of complaints about or felt bad ourselves about not being able to squeeze in, they all went against each other in this film spotting invitation tournament. We're doing a matchup a day, again, over on the Patreon page, and recent first-round matchups have included a win by Black Klansman over the Big Short. I love to see that. Green Room won over You Were Never Really Here, and then Short Term 12 won in a squeaker over Never Let Me Go. How do you feel about that, Adam? My beloved Never Let Me Go has completed, sadly. Round two will have just gotten underway when this show posts. Other benefits of being a film spotting patron include ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. You can get early downloads, live show pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and our monthly bonus episodes. We are in the midst now of discovering what our April bonus show content will be. There's either some bonus Betty Davis or TV spotting. The family members get to decide. We're either going to talk about Alex Garland's Devs, which is free to Hulu subscribers and it's on demand elsewhere, including Amazon Prime, or David Simon's adaptation of Philip Roth's 2004 novel, The Plot Against America. And that bonus Betty option is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It's looking like it's going to be one of those TV shows, though, Josh. Yeah, and I'm going to guess, seeing how Ex Machina did in Film Spotty Madness, I'm going to guess we might end up with devs, which yeah. would be fantastic. But but yeah, definitely interested in The Plot Against America, too, if we end up going that way. So we will see right now 
our March bonus show is live. So if you haven't joined the Film Spotting family on Patreon yet, you can still do that and get that episode, which is a We Were Wrong Once review of Sin City. Going back, looking at Adam and Sam's 2005 review of Sin City, where they were very split and seeing if any opinion shifted. So that was fun recording. And again, it is there right now available for you at patreon.com slash filmspotting. And if you go way back with the show and remember the Sam days as a co-host or you've gone back through the archive, I'll quote Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York, who said that Sam has not lost any of his fastball. There's some really great lines and some great thoughts from Sam Definitely. in that discussion. So we do encourage you to check that out by becoming a family member. Patreon.com slash film spotting. Hi. I got a tape I want to play. From the opening of Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, that's Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. We get into our 8 from 84 rock trio now, and we'll start with the films that are the consensus masterpieces. Demme's seminal concert film and Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap was first to be released. It came out in March of 84, made a modest $5 million at the domestic box office. That's around $12 million in today's dollars. But... Not surprising, considering it soon became a cult hit. It did run in theaters for almost a year, and it marked Rob Reiner's directing debut. Looking at Stop Making Sense, that only played in limited release, opened in New York City in October, and made about $5 million in its theatrical run. Jonathan Demme had been working for quite a bit already, started his career a decade earlier making cheap genre movies for Roger Corman. Just before Stop Making Sense, he had made Melvin and Howard and also Swing Shift. So these are two movies we're familiar with, Adam. As a matter of fact, they both showed up when we did our top five films of 1984. I think this was I think this was in uh, 2017, around. And our ranking of them on those lists uh, was a little bit different. Spinal Tap for you, the best film of 1984. You had Stop Making Sense ranked number three. I had Stop Making Sense as the second best film of 1984. So splitting hairs probably a little bit there, but that's what we do on this show. So now that you've thought about it a little bit more, um, and especially in the context of Purple Rain and this year that we've been revisiting in this eight from 84 series that has prompted this show, um, do you you feel pretty solid about that top ranking for Spinal Tap? Yeah, I do. And I think it may come down to that distinction sometimes we make between best versus favorite. In a lot of ways, I think Stop Making Sense might be the better film or the better crafted film. But in terms of the movie that I absolutely can't imagine living without, I still value This Is Final Tap just a little bit more. And I want to avoid trying to be too grandiose here and also avoid turning this pandemic we're experiencing and how we're all coping with it into a cliche. I mentioned this last week in relation to our top five 1930s films. We talked about Top Hat and how it served as fantasy escapism for people suffering through the Great Depression. Why couldn't it transport us now as we all sit on our couches? And I think Stop Making Sense offers a completely different type of necessary escape. With Fred and Ginger, you're living vicariously through them. And there's no real sense of community there. And when I rewatch Stop Making Sense 
for this show. I felt a little bit like Charlton Heston in The Omega Man with that lone print of Woodstock. The last man in the world watching this eclectic group of performers surrounded by people sharing in this collective reverie. And stop making sense. Let's be honest. It's a party even without the crowd there, right? There are certainly Mm -hmm. songs and whole stretches where you kind of forget the crowd is even there as if David Byrne and company are performing only for us, the film watching audience. And we can talk about that in some of the ways Demi approaches it. But just in terms of the number of musicians on stage and the talent and joy of performing they exhibit and their interaction with each other, which is so crucial, it's like you're on stage with them. Well, and this is why... Byrne, David Byrne and Demi were a perfect pairing for this film, for this music documentary. Uh, it's exactly what Demi brought to the Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids doc from a few years ago on Netflix, emphasized the communal experience, the 15 plus, I think it was, person band in that case, and the camera floated among each performer and gave them their time. Similar things are happening here, but just as Timberlake was the conductor of that group, Byrne is absolutely, I would say he He's beyond the conductor here. He is the auteur of this film. David Byrne is. And I uh, talked a little bit about this when we did that list, the top five films of 84, because the way that he is paying attention to everything from the production design to those who are up on the stage with him to the props, the way he uses that lamp, that house lamp when they're performing, this must be the place. Um, everything he's controlling to a specific degree a burn is and then demi is the sort of filmmaker that wants to make space for all of that his camera wants to encompass you see this in his fiction in his drama films his camera wants to make room for everyone in the story and how many group scenes aren't there in demi films and that's what this is a group scene this is one long group scene made up of the music the brilliant music from burn and the talking heads as well um so yeah i think it's just a the perfect example of everything coming together yeah i'm going to echo what you said because that clip we heard from Psycho Killer. That's one of my favorite Demi moments. I think it made my top five Jonathan Demi moments, a list we did back when he passed away. And of course, it opens just with David Byrne walking out on stage and he dominates that tune. But that sense of community I'm talking about, this idea of unity that we see on stage throughout the whole rest of the film, it's built into the very fabric of the movie. Yes, it starts with him alone, but the next tune adds just one more piece, Tina Weymouth on bass, right? And they play Heaven. And the camera... I'm pretty sure, if not the entire song, 95% of it stays on a two shot where they are joined together that entire time. It's never about just cutting to what she's doing or cutting to what David Byrne is doing. It's about them together performing. And then the next song adds Chris France on the drums. And I think they perform Thank You for Sending Me an Angel. And the way the camera then gives him his time and goes from behind the drum set, rotating around to the side and the front of the stage, it's rotating around so that it gets those two in the shot with him, right? And what started as just kind of the drummer becomes this trio. And then we're just going to add more and more pieces until everybody finally is on stage commuting together. And you mentioned this specificity that we get. There's no doubt about it. I actually want to play for our listeners a quick clip that I just happened to come across. Our friends at the Blank Check podcast tweeted this, and it's a conversation after a screening, I think, of that Justin Timberlake concert film where he's talking about what draws him to live music and capturing it and putting it on film. For me... Um, and I love shooting feature films with actors. I love shooting documentaries with real people. 
but something about shooting live music, I, I always, this probably isn't true, but I think this is the purest form of filmmaking. There are these artists doing that, and we're here to team up with that and capture that in, in, the, in the way that best suits the music that's being played. And it's I just love Demi emphasizing the kind of giddiness he has when he says, there are these artists doing that. And then when he says, we're here to team up with that, again, that sense of team, that sense of community, and how important it is for him to do it in a way that best suits the music being played. That's exactly what you articulated, Josh. There is this precision to it, right? The choreography of the visuals matching the stage choreography. And it would be almost impossible, I think, to rank the top five numbers, the top five songs in this movie if we forced ourselves to do it. But Once in a Lifetime stands out. Life During Wartime stands out, as well as making Flippy Floppy. But then you look at one like What a Day That Was, which goes almost completely to close-ups and that dramatic silhouetted lighting, almost like it's a horror movie. And for a while, we don't get any group shots. It's just isolated shots of each member. Some of the angles are a little bit more odder, but there's almost this mathematical framing to every shot there that matches the song completely. Yeah, for me, it probably is uh, the number I mentioned. This must be the place just because it has all those elements you're talking about. And it, it it's that balance of Byrne, David Byrne's extreme individuality, extreme oddness, right? Just the oddness he has as a physical presence. But then also the camera will back up and make room for, as you said, the group. And they have this interesting um, use of, I think we'll probably talk about this when it comes to Purple Rain, especially um, where there is some choreography sort of but at the same time I think of the group backing away from the stage and this includes the backup singers and dancers as well Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry that everyone kind of backs up in unison but at the same time they're each doing their own thing Um, those two dancers Mabry and Holt Mm -hmm. each have their own sort of rhythm going on and so it's at once this group movement that also honors individuality. And, and I think that that's the magic that Demi knows how to, um, how to depict and Byrne obviously knows how to create. Yeah, that is the magic of Stop Making Sense. Any final thoughts you want to get in on the film? No, I mean, I, just one maybe that will bring us into this is Spinal Tap. You mentioned how, um, you know, what what is a personal favorite as opposed to what is the best. I think another, as I thought of all three of these films together, you know, not even really ranking, but just as they, how they sit with me, uh, an inescapable fact is whatever music you like the best, you're going to resonate with the most. And so let me give my This is Spinal Tap confession, <laughs> which maybe, maybe um, explain why I did have it ranked a little bit lower is that's just brutal music to me (laughs) and the question i have for you adam as someone who um is in a band that plays on occasion from what i understand i I still have to see you live have not been able to do that Uh yet um but you know we'll play covers of this genre um i'll let you name the genre whether it's heavy metal hair metal (laughs) whatever you want to say but my question is the music in spinal tap do you consider it um brutal on purpose, 
or do you consider it a very particular and precise um, rendition of that kind of music? So are they doing a good job of this kind of music? Basically, if you like this kind of music, um, are these good performances of those types of songs? Well, I'm going to say it's more the former, but there's some gray area there. I guess I will fundamentally disagree with your position because I have This Is Spinal Tap ranked as my favorite movie of the three, but in terms of the music, it's by far number three, and it's way down at the bottom. And I'm going to be clear here. You're taking the bold position that the mediocre band that's stuck playing Air Force bases and amusement parks and being mocked on the radio isn't very good. Is that what you're saying, Josh? No, no, no. no I'm saying heavy metal has has been like I would classify as one of those sounds along with leaf blowers and, and people like revving up their trucks as they sit next to me at a stoplight. <laughs> that gives me the hives. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I get it. But I think the way I look at it is and thank you you saved me from having to pull out the i'm in a band card which is essential when talking about spinal <laughs> hey, tap but i knew i knew it was coming so yeah, I you did I'd serve it up for you you know me well there's literally nobody i'm gonna go on the record and say there's literally nobody who watches this is spinal tap and appreciates the music unironically any of the okay. musicianship which isn't to say that those guys aren't actually halfway decent players i mean they're all decent enough musicians to fake their way through it and we've seen them perform in other christopher guest movies too and, right so and honestly that's why i asked because yeah. I do, re- I'm not saying that they are untalented. No, I'm saying this isn't talented. my kind of music. So no, the I question was like, how yeah. how does their talent transfer? Well, is the I, question. I guess the nuance is is that you can't help but look at songs like Big Bottom and Stonehenge and Sex Farm and not recognize them as jokes. And I think what it gets right about heavy metal and. I use that term loosely because I do think it is more rock and roll, but heavy metal does get thrown around, I think, a couple times in the film. It gets right that that genre has a juvenile obsession with sex, and there is always that vague fascination with the occult and mysticism and those cheap theatrics, and even something that I had never really paid attention to before. Not like it wasn't obviously there, but... I had never really paid attention to the heart of the movie before the way I did this time, which is that rivalry and that friendship between lead singer and guitar player. But that's something that's so crucial to almost every rock band out there as well. For me, every band of that ilk, though, from that time, and frankly, just about every band who's ever toured, regardless of what genre they fall into, they would be able to watch Spinal Tap and see themselves in tap while also totally accurately being able to say, Oh, that's not us at all. We don't sound like that. Like Spinal Tap is a unique entity as much as they might be parroting certain aspects of heavy metal bands and life on the road. The music is completely its own thing that I don't think any one band out there could say, oh, man, they really got us good with that. Yeah, yeah, and they probably wouldn't want to because it is pretty bad. So, so let's get to what is, what is good. And you mentioned it. The songs are jokes, obviously. Yes, and they're fu- the lyrics are hysterical. And I could sit and watch um, Marty DeBerge interview these guys. I mean, if the movie was just that, I would yeah. be completely happy. And and no surprise, I love comic improvisation and you can just see. Uh, I love also seeing actors this talented at it. Um, trying to keep character, not not that's that they're it. gonna like, yep. yeah, not that they're gonna fall out of character and say something out of character. What they're trying to do is 
keep the glint in their eye when they see an opening from getting too bright. Right. <laughs> and this is such rich material. And the, these guys are just so smart at delivering it that that is their true challenge is, is just not to, to get too excited about, you know, what they're, what they're going to say and whether it's, you know, explaining the drummers who, <laughs> who they've lost along the way uh, or, or even like going up to 11, just those pauses of where Debergy is like dumbfounded at what he's hearing. <laughs> right. and the two of them are going to have to sustain this scene without giving in or even smiling. It's brilliant stuff. Now, during the Flower People period, who was your drummer? Stumpy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. We were playing a, a, a festival, blues, jazz blues festival. Where was that? Well, blues well, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. It was, the, it was the. Uh, it was in the Isle. Isle of Lucy. Lucy. The yeah. Isle of Lucy. Isle of Lucy. Jazz blues festival. And uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light. And that was it. Nothing was left. It was, face. Well, there was. It's that, true. This, it was this true. truly did happen. There was a little green globule on his drum seat. It's like a stain, really. It was, it was a small stain. stain in a globule, yeah. actually. And you know, was, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. I think the best scenes in the film were probably completely in lockstep, that if they had just made an entire movie out of Rob Reiner as Marty DeBerge interviewing the band... And watching how Derek Smalls, Harry Shear, knows when to insert himself into the conversation and when to just stay yes. on the outside of it, right? And let yep. let Michael McKean and Christopher Guest do their thing and them navigate each other and recognize when they have to let the other guy take the lead. And yes, you're right. Not break character so much because they're all too good to do that. But you can see that moment where they come up right against it. They're so impressed with some bit of riffing that the guy next to them just said that yes. they're almost willing to break. But then they get back into character and manage to come up with a line to follow it with. And you're right. For me, all these years later, no matter how many times I've seen it, it's still funny it still has all those great quotable lines and those sight gags that everyone knows. But the funniest stuff to me, honestly, besides those conversation scenes we just touched on, are the moments where we get a simple cut to Christopher Guest, expressionless but chomping the gum every time Janine talks. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just that simple cut to him. No reaction, no visible reaction, but we know everything he's thinking just based on that cut. And I'm glad you bring up guests because I think they're all obviously good and they're all giving us, you know, real characters. But guest, I think, is giving a real performance. For sure. And it's it's the I, it's the elements you're talking about. It's those little details where where he is uh, within that. He's he's Nigel Tufnell every moment. You know, he he's whether it's his turn to say something, to throw in a riff or just to sit there and listen. He he is not um, breaking character at all. No. Uh, and it's also. That's where, as his films as a director go on, these other mockumentaries he would make, um, you can see how they are mostly increasingly rooted in character, in stories, in in people you can imagine their full lives beyond the interview, the on-camera interview they're having right now. And you can see the seeds of that in his performance as Nigel in this full character he's giving us. Absolutely. Just that mixture of bravado and stupidity is really <laughs> <That's>... brilliant. <laughs> What what can you do but laugh at moments like him saying, so it's sexy 
what's wrong with being sexy when they're talking about the album cover and how sexy it is. It's just perfection. So, yeah, I love both of these films. This is Spinal Tap and Stop Making Sense. Both of them are available on demand on various platforms right now. Well, these are not much protection against COVID-19, Adam, but I'm going to put on my lace gloves anyway. Our 8 from 84 review of Purple Rain is next. Stay with us. I never meant to call you same person twice that was the most important one that was the one that i broke first that's when the trouble started that's from the trailer for 1998's following the debut film of one christopher nolan a movie josh neither of us has seen but we are going to correct that we thought about nolan's latest film upcoming film Tenet, which is supposed to be in theaters, we all hope, in July. And so with no new films currently opening anywhere, we're going to try something new for the show. We're calling it, thanks to listener Chad Camello, an overview of Nolan's filmography. Basically going in chronological order, so starting with following and going all the way up through Dunkirk. So after following, that means we'll head to his 2000 breakout film, Memento, believe it or not, Memento will be celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Also next week on the show, it will be the second film in our Betty Davis Marathon, 1938's Jezebel, that one directed by William Wyler. This is available, Jezebel, on most platforms on demand. If you want to see the entire lineup for that Betty Davis Marathon, you can check it out at filmspotting.net slash marathons. We did want to mention a way you could support your local art house theaters. Kino Lorber is collaborating with theaters across the country for a virtual theatrical release of the new Brazilian film, Bakaru. Our friend Sean Gilman calls it, quote, a John Carpenter Kurosawa riff on Heaven's Gate. I am all in on that. Bakaru had its debut last spring at the Cannes Film Festival, where it was a Palme d'Or nominee, and it was the co-winner of the Grand Jury Prize. It played the festival circuit last year, and it was scheduled to open in early March here in the States in limited release. We can all now watch it on Online and part of your $12 ticket will go to support the theater of your choice. In our case, it would probably be Chicago's The Music Box. So if you're curious about that film, as we certainly are and we plan to watch it, I think based on what we know about it, a potential Golden Brick nominee, you can get more information by going to our show notes over at filmspotting.net and we will provide a link there. 
This is really good to see. I mean, not just nice for theaters as a way to bring in some income, generate some revenue right now, but also a way to make it feel like the entire film year is not entirely on pause, you know, Mm -hmm. that that some things are still happening, that new films are still being made available. So yeah, I'm excited to hear this. Every two weeks over at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you will find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. And just in case you had any doubt that Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky are more formidable critics than us, They're tackling Steven Soderbergh's Contagion and 1950s Panic in the Streets. Their pandemic double pairing, I don't know that I've got the strength for it, Josh. No, no. My stomach could not handle that, so I'm glad to see The Next Picture Show folks taking it on. New episodes of The Next Picture Show, they post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and there is more information at nextpictureshow.net. Will you help me? Nope. Pardon me? Nope. Wanna know why? Nope. Because you wouldn't pass the initiation. What initiation? Well, for starters, you have to purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. What? You have to purify yourself in Lake Minnetonka. So the best part of that, Josh, is that, of course... You hadn't seen Purple Rain until now, so I was able to pull that exact initiation prank on you when you joined the show. <laughs> yes, it's a, you know it, it usually takes till about July for Lake Minnetonka here outside of Chicago for the waters to get warm. So it was a little chilly, yeah. but you know, you ask for a favor, I do it. That's right. You survived, and you're still here. That's Prince with Apollonia Cotero in 1984's Purple Rain. We continue our 8 from 84 rock trio conversation with Purple Rain. It opened in July of 84. It went on to become the year's number 12 movie at the box office. It made $68 million, which would translate to about $172 million in today's dollars. Prince won the Oscar for Best Music, Original Song, Score, and it is a musical autobiography of sorts, not written or directed by Prince. In this case, it was Albert Magnoli, who not only went on to make some other videos for Prince, he was the uncredited director on Tango and Cash, and he made another cheese fest from the 80s I loved, starring Mitch Gaylord and Janet Jones. Did you see that one, Josh? American Anthem? Uh, No, so I I think we have a marathon, a future marathon on our hands. (laughs) We could. We definitely could. So Purple Rain, not Prince necessarily telling his story or his precise story, but we are getting a stylized version of his story coming up in the Minneapolis music scene. The movie also stars Twin Cities music legend Morris Day playing a version of himself. Now, Josh, I don't know if you came across this in your prep for this episode, but at ultimateprince.com, they have an article entitled 35 Unforgettable Moments from Purple Rain. How long is this I'm movie? I'm going to give you, yeah, I'm going to give you the top six here, and you'll understand why I am giving you six, because a couple of them fit so neatly together. At number six, they have when Morris Day and Jerome can't figure out the password. What's the password? It's what? It's it? Number five, every single time Morris Day laughs. And then we've got two here that fit together. At three and four, they've got Apollonia deciding to purify herself, as we just heard in the freezing lake, and then Apollonia finding out that ain't Lake Minnetonka. So it's so good. It's got two in the top five. Those are two very distinct moments. I understand that. Of course. Yeah. Number two, when the kid seduces Apollonia by staring at the back of her head. And that's exactly their wording, Josh. I didn't (laughs) paraphrase that. (laughs) And number one, 
is Prince's badass opening performance of Let's Go Crazy. So as someone who only now will have the pleasure of always having these moments seared in your memory, Mm. what are you least able to shake? The obviously padded, clunky screenplay that asks Morris and Jerome to play Abbott and Costello, that irritating laugh and equally irritating but undeniable charisma of Morris Day, Prince's extremely awkward romancing of Apollonia, complete with grade school tormenting in a movie that feels every bit of its 1980s-ness in terms of casual misogyny, or finally, Prince, the dynamic musician and performer lighting up the First Avenue stage. Also, you have to tell me where on your personal top 35 list is the kid's monkey puppet giving him life advice. Ultimateprince.com had it at number 10. The monkey puppet is its own movie. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's its own enigma. Really, Adam, it's its own spiritual experience. Yep. I, I, I still am not quite sure what to do with that, where that scene will lead me, and what sort of man I will be when I come out of finally <laughs> understanding what was going on there. Um, this is an interesting movie and, uh, your setup seems to assume that I am not going to redo my top five films of 84 list and put it at the top. I don't know why you're being so presumptuous. (laughs) I don't know either. Uh, but let's say this, when you have music this magnificent in so many ways and performances of that music, um, this electrifying, it can cover monkey puppets. It can cover um, Lake Minna, what is it, Tonka? Tonka. Tonka. It can cover uh, that horrible who's on first routine. I don't know if it can cover the misogyny, and we're going to spend some time on that, um, whether that's what it is or if it's something maybe a bit more forgivable and interesting. But this music, those scenes are so good. And I do want to spend some time talking about them when we when we get into this. And I also think, you know, they're not wrong. Was that what was that ultimateprince.com? Is that where yeah. you're you spent mm-hmm. a lot of time this week? They're not wrong about Morris Day. <laughs> I mean, uh, that one scene, the who's on first routine doesn't work. No. But here's what's interesting about Morris Day, okay? Uh he he maintains that charisma. And that sense of electricity that he has on stage when he's mm-hmm. performing with the time, he maintains it when he gets off stage. And you, he's a kind of a despicable character, but you can see what's amusing about him. Prince, when he gets off stage, it just drains. It just yeah. drains from the guy. And that's to take nothing away from him. He, he didn't set out to be an actor. He didn't go on to try to be necessarily an actor uh, after this because he didn't have to be. He's one of the all-time great musicians. <laughs> but it is fascinating to see how someone so talented at one thing uh, in the arena of performance can, can kind of be a blank mm-hmm. as soon as he does leave the stage. So that was a takeaway for me from Purple Rain. I mean, I think I think this is a movie that you do have to appreciate just because of the way it is uh, a time capsule of Prince's music itself and his, his abilities as a performer of that music because those concert scenes are just fantastic. They are, but I'm surprised in that you seem almost surprised by that. For me, that's just one of the givens going into Purple Rain. Even if I had never seen the movie, I'm so aware of Prince's immense talent. Well, sure, but it's one thing to be aware of it. It's our thing to experience it, you that's know, true. To, to sit in to sit in front of it and and see it. And and I think 
There are, you know, some very small things. He's no Magnoli. Albert Magnoli is no Debbie. Okay, let's not get carried away. But there are a few <laughs> small choices he makes. Uh, let's let's start there. Let, let me talk about the performance. The one I would cite. Every performance in here is great by Prince, but the one that I would cite is the one of the movie for me, is The Beautiful Ones, Mm -hmm. which comes maybe about midway through. And it's not one of the showier ones. It starts out just him at the piano. Um, But this is where Apollonia is actually sitting at a table at the club with Morris Day. So he's basically trying to woo her while Prince is performing. And Prince is having none of this and basically woos her away Mm -hmm. from the stage as he's wooing the entire audience the same time. And uh, there's one little touch in there that Magnoli makes at some point as Apollonia is watching Prince perform, we get the slowest of camera zooms that collapses the space between him on stage and her at this table at the back of the club. Everyone else disappears. You know, they lay it on a little bit thickly. She starts to tear up, right? But that camera Mm. movement is just so crucial. And it's also a good example of Prince's uh, vocal dexterity, where he Mm -hmm. starts with kind of the the low register, uh, moves into this falsetto, and then when he knows it's time to put Morris Day in his place and tell Apollonia it's time to choose, he just starts angry screaming, right? Yeah. Until he almost passes out. I just think that whole number is fantastic, and the filmmaking is, you know, the filmmaking helps it there, yeah. I think, whereas a lot of the other numbers, you just put that camera, and you make mm-hmm. sure Prince stays in frame, and you're good. Yeah, yeah. The Beautiful Ones would definitely be up there for me as well in terms of my favorite musical numbers. I do have to ask you about the experience of Purple Rain, because you, I see, gave it the proper reverence and decided to live-tweet the movie, something I'm not sure I've ever seen you do before. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I have. I do think it's probably appropriate. Inappropriate, though, did you really do that and not thread your posts? Maybe can one of your kids do the tweeting next time for you, old man? Yeah, uh, old man, figure it out. You just go to the profile page and you read them all at once, all right? Nobody wants to do that. Come (laughs) on. Okay, so here's where I'm at on Purple Rain as someone who watched this movie a hundred times when he was 10 years old. I would say now the question isn't whether... Purple Raid is a good movie. It is, to get to your point, whether Prince's music and his performances are enough to overcome just how bad of a movie it really is. And Correct. Right now, I'm flipping a coin <laughs> with one side of that coin being not quite and the other side of that coin being just barely. And I do say this as a fan, as someone who thinks he's probably the greatest pop musician slash songwriter of our generation. If you you set the Beatles aside in terms of songwriting and musicianship, that's our parents' generation. For us 80s kids, it's Prince. That combination of the songs with that talent. He's a legit virtuoso, and you see that in Purple Rain without a doubt. But it's not a movie so much as an extended music video slash creation myth 
not only for Prince, but for the song Purple Rain itself. And yes, the movie has multiple music videos embedded into the framework of the movie in order, I think, probably to fill some time. But when you look at it that way, as an extended music video, as this creation myth, then you can be more charitable because things like narrative and emotional logic, which Purple Rain has almost none of, don't really matter. You can then ignore how it's obviously only really about Prince and only concerned with his arc. But we've got that whole Apollonia star is born aspect to it. The dreamer looking to make it big that feels completely shoehorned in. And you talked about that great moment between them in The Beautiful Ones. I agree it's there. But then Magnolia goes back to it again and again. You have to ignore how she's mostly limited to showing any kind of character development or arc herself only through close-up reactions to Prince performing all the messages he's sending to her through the power of his words and music and those erotic gyrations. And a real struggle too, is then you have to ignore how everything gets tied up so neatly because of one powerful performance of a powerful song, right? Suddenly the guy who runs the club, I think his name is Billy. He sees Prince's brilliance and, Oh, that's a, that's a great close-up shot. Billy sparks. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> where he's Smirking, in the back kind of, of the nodding. club. He's just yeah. like, yep, yep, the kids now, got it. Now we get it. Yeah, the kids got it. The kid's going to be a commercial success. While also tying up the loose end of him being this selfish artist because he played Wendy and Lisa's song and he gave them credit for it. And then Apollonia is so moved, she forgets all the wrongs he's done to her throughout the movie. And of course, his mom and dad. We get that one cutaway to the hospital bed. They're not in the club, but Prince managed, the kid managed to take all of that pain that they've caused him and each other. And he turned that into this magic. So surely, Josh, of course, those two will be okay. And they're all going to be healed by that purple rain moving forward. It's all stuff that you can swallow, that fantasy and those kinds of swift transformations in a music video, mm. less so in a movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, what I'm taking away from this is is you don't think Purple Rain is a very good song, Adam. And it, it's not that powerful. <laughs> it doesn't have that sort of power. Oh, man. I okay. love that song. So you're not, you're not wrong about um, you know that stuff. But let's talk about what is interesting in the cracks of all those problematic things. And you touched on the one about, um, it's Wendy Melvoin, right? And then I'm not sure who else is, it's implied, also wrote the song. Because her, her, is it her sister, Susanna Melvoin, who was also in the revolution? And, I just only know that was Wendy and Lisa. Yeah, and it, well, and the movie doesn't help us because here's what is a strike against it. It ref, Prince refers to them as the girls in the band, right? So yeah. they're just they're just the girls in the band. Yet it is really interesting that even that space is made for them in this creation myth that you describe, which is absolutely right. The whole movie is about. I kept waiting for Purple Rain, and it, like, when am I going to get to hear Purple Rain? Until I realize, oh, the movie is all about writing and performing Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. So it does allow that this song was born not from Prince. It was born from these two right. other women, which is interesting. And then- It is. You know, so it it, it kind of takes the movie away from being this hagiography about him. It gives a surprising amount of credit to others for the genesis of the song. And there's even, I really love one of the tiniest details in this movie is during the performance of Purple Rain, Prince walks over and gives this very light, distinctly non-sexual kiss of acknowledgement on Wendy Melvoin's cheek. And I, I want to make a point of that because otherwise, you know, just like 
taking uh, paying your bill at the club is performed as a sex act in this movie. So the fact that anything is non-sexual and he makes a point of showing that this kiss is yeah. an acknowledgement, is is a nod, is a thank you to her for giving this song, which has led to these other things. So I think okay. over, overall, those are all fair criticisms, but it was very interesting to me that the movie even bothered with that element. No, I get you. And the only thing I will say, though, is that did you also pay attention to how Wendy reacted to that kiss? Yes, and because I watched it a couple times because I it's bet. not how... Go ahead. I know I know where you're going with I mean, it. because she she reacts like... You know, a grade school girl getting an unwanted kiss from a boy on the playground and wiping it off her cheek and pushing him away. Yeah, except she doesn't wipe it off and she doesn't, she doesn't. push him away, but she doesn't pull a face of like, it's not like a kumbaya moment. My, no. From watching it a couple times, though, I, I almost wonder if she is about to cry and she's holding that back. Mm. It could also be a face of like, you know, con- constricting emotion face is kind of how I read it, but probably maybe a more generous reading. Yeah. I do want to echo something you said, because I have in my notes two things just under the heading fascinating things. And one of them is this very thing you're talking about, giving some of the songwriting credit, if not the brunt of it, to Wendy and Lisa, because it's something that is fundamentally untrue. This is one of his biggest hits, the song that really did define Prince, the song he's played more than any other song in concert. And the movie suggests that it was originally written by to other members of the band. Now, the movie also does make a very clear point that he worked on it quite a bit. He wrote all the lyrics and he turned it into the song we see being performed, but it originated with them. And as we said, he credits them with writing it on stage, except that didn't really happen at all. So it's just so fascinating to me. It's neither a criticism nor praise for the movie. It's just fascinating to me that you've got Prince. This is the story of his Rise to stardom, his yeah. coming of age as a musician, and the song that ended up defining him, he was willing to let the movie create a myth, something that wasn't true. So is there a connection here maybe to this far more complicated relationship with women that Prince, or at least the Prince we see in the movie, has? Because I did know of this movie's reputation, and even when I would mention to people that I was going to watch it for the first time, you know, kind of say something about the misogyny or about the the violence against women that it had. And so I knew that it was there going in, but it, it also struck me as, yeah, awful. Like there's there's some awful stuff here, but also mm-hmm. more complicated than, than I expected in the fact that we are clearly seeing someone who is um, modeling what he's been raised with. Um, the first time we meet his parents, his father's physically abusing his mother. And just a, an aside, Clarence Williams III as the father, I think gives a real performance in this movie. He does. He's absolutely bringing something to it that most of the other scenes don't have. But yeah, th- there's basically... I feel like there's a serious attempt somewhere in this movie to to address violent impulses mm-hmm. against women and to explore um, where they might come from, how they might be changed. Uh, now, the, the difficulty is that there are also instances of just pure sexism and objectification. Mm-hmm. And this is where Prince gets complicated, right? Because his celebration of sexuality is at once freeing and good and encouraging and at the same time can also be very limiting and objectifying and demeaning to women. And it's there is a figure in this movie, the character that he plays is capable of making space and honoring women as 
co-creators, as we've been talking about, as mm-hmm. nothing more than sex objects, which is what Apollonia is, and as as deserving victims of violence, really, which is what he's modeling from his father. But he also seems to be struggling with that. So I, yeah. th- it was that was, I mean, the fascinating category. I would throw that under there for sure. Yeah, I really did feel very sorry for Apollonia as an actress watching oh, this movie. Yes. Those stupid teasing scenes we've already touched on involving the lake and the bike. The unwatchable sex scene. And let me just say. My goodness. I started curling myself into a fetal position for you oh. when that sex scene started. And I wrote in my notes that it's a bad 80s sex scene Hall of Famer. I mean, it makes anything in the Terminator and Starman seem <laughs> yes. like maybe Lubitsch staged them by <laughs> oh, comparison. Oh, it's that bad. I, I, I wish I was back in the sewers in the Terminator. <laughs> Is that is you that, really do? Is that where they were doing that? Wasn't it a sewer or a tunnel or somewhere? Something somewhere. I think it was a sewer tunnel. Decidedly romantic. But I'm with you that I think you can watch it and give it some credit for the way it handles domestic abuse and this idea of the cycles of domestic abuse and it yes. being something that he almost inherits. You can do that while also seeing, on the other hand, how that seems way too simple and again just sort of fits into this movie's overall music video kind of psychological logic but you also can't avoid that datedness of as i said the casual misogyny and it starts early on with morris and jerome dumping a girl that morris ran out on and didn't call back they dump her into a dumpster and the problem with that is is that we already know or we're going to come to know there's going to be lots of examples of how misogynistic Morris and Jerome fundamentally are and how they view women. That's fine that that's one of their character traits. And he's the villain of the film. Morris ultimately is or one of them anyway. Right. He's the main antagonist to Prince. But the problem is, I think the movie finds it funny. I think the movie finds it funny. Right. That it dumps her in the garbage. And I was also bugged a little bit. And this is something I definitely didn't pick up on back in 84, 85. But I feel like it had to be intentional because of the way it's called out. The final song in the movie isn't Purple Rain. After Purple Rain, he performs a great song, I Would Die For You, Mm -hmm. which is the line the kid's father says to his mother, the woman that he's repeatedly abused, and says it as if this is some great confession of love on his part, when in fact... It just speaks to his overall ownership of her and the way he ultimately feels about her. And it's almost as if the movie's saying, oh, look what the kid did. He also took that proclamation, that really troubling proclamation, and somehow artistically transformed that as well. Yeah, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I mean, I mean, it, it could be an example of him um, doing exactly what you just said, is taking um, something that was terrible and renewing it through art into something that is beautiful. And I guess maybe I was I'm open to that sort of reading too because that's another example of a good Clarence Williams the third scene where you're recognizing the awfulness of this guy but also some true pain that he has. Mm-hmm. There's actually some good scenes between him and Prince where he talks about his father as a musician and songs that his father has written and this is where some of the autobiographical haziness comes in, right? Are we learning something about, you know, Prince's own background and and are all of these sort of um, sexual and possession-focused songs that he writes, are these um, transformations in some way of real pain? Mm-hmm. And, and is that maybe where they're coming from? We won't really know. But but you mentioned Apollonia feeling sorry for her. Oh, man, how about uh, the song 
that she gets to perform, the girl band that she gets to perform. I think the band is just at Apollonia, right? That's the name of the band? Apollonia 6. Apollonia 6. I mean, oof. I I did think of um, in La La Land where poor John Legend got stuck with Start a Fire. And you're kind of like, what what is this doing in this movie? That was kind of uh, Apollonia's performance number. Uh, Not good. I would say not good. No, it's not good. And I understand everything you're saying, and I want to see it that way. I think what I'm arguing is that it maybe minimizes the pain through that artistic transformation in a way that a better crafted movie might not do. But you're absolutely right about Clarence Williams and about Prince, who, let's face it, he's awkward almost every moment he's on screen, except when he's on stage. Absolutely. The second he steps off, there's an enigmatic quality to him and a mystery to him that just reads as distant and borderline alien and, of course, a lot weird. And you're right that Morris Day is someone who is just always Morris Day. That persona is the same on stage or off. And I love that touch. I'll give Magnolia the credit that we even see that, right? Jerome rolls up in the taxi to pick him up like he's his chauffeur, even when nobody's looking. (laughs) That's just the roles that they actually (laughs) exhibit and act out every day of their lives, whether they're on stage or not. But Prince can't be that same character at all that he is on stage versus off. The other thing I had under my heading of two fascinating things is the song Darling Nikki, right? This is during the big, I suppose, breakup that occurs between Prince and Apollonia from the stage, as all of their main encounters do, (laughs) where he's at a low point, she's at a low point, he's really hurting, and he really wants to hurt her. And from the movie's point of view, this is him just crashing and burning as an artist, right? He's angry, he's lashing out, he's not just ignoring his audience, He's torturing them. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. This is where we get Billy, the club owner, saying... Let me give you a piece of advice, Junior. Your music makes sense to no one but yourself. So this whole idea that he's only up there somehow brutally entertaining himself. And then, as we said, there's finally this release on that. There's this catharsis of him performing Purple Rain and getting the club owner's approval. In the context of the movie, this is a terrible performance. And yet, looking at setlist.fm, this is the song Prince played in concert the 35th most of any of his tracks. So as we go back to this kind of myth that's being created and how he's willing to play with it a little bit, I've always wondered, how did Prince feel about this song, Darling Nikki? Because he's willing to let it be revealed in the scope of the film as if it's just the worst, as if it's just horrible. Yeah. But I don't think he probably felt that way about it. No, I think it's in that line you quoted where where he... um you know, he accuses him of just playing it for himself. I don't think it's that he necessarily thinks it was bad for the audience because it was bad. My reading was it was bad for the audience because it it wasn't a popular type song. Like this, this was Prince going deep Prince, you know, and th- and that's kind of what was meant by you're doing this just for yourself. You're not even trying to offer something that would please the audience. Sure, and maybe Josh, maybe the, the problem is that Prince says, is incapable of doing that. Like, I, but then we learn that he isn't. That's the whole point: is that the reversal at the end of the film is the kid 
performing a song that does get everyone's approval. So it's as if the movie is validating right. what the club owner was saying. Yeah. That, that he was just being totally indulgent in that moment. But maybe Prince doesn't see those lines. <laughs> you know, Prince doesn't see the lines between indulgence and, I suppose, audience service. They're all the yeah. same. Probably. Yeah. And it's, it, well, it's, it's a variation on the artist being true to yourself. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the distinction that's probably set up at the very beginning where Morris day, he, the reason he's the headliner is because he's going to make everybody happy. Right. That's his priority. Whereas Prince is doing this a little bit more out there music for himself. Yeah. I think I'll just close by saying there's no other movie where I would look at my notes after and see masks, doll cutaways, an angry mother effing spin. It's well, purple rain. So, so Debbie had a, a pertinent question that I do want your opinion on uh, while watching it with me. So, in the basement, you're you're referring to his basement apartment, right? Yeah. Uh, beneath where he lives, beneath these warring parents, and when Prince goes nuts and he starts smashing everything up in the basement, we see I like know. this whole shelving of nice <laughs> ca- glass glass jars for like canning strawberries and blueberries, and De- Debbie just turns to me and goes. Who is canning in this house? <laughs> so, Which is the line of the film, just that she said that watching it. So who who do you think is canning? I mean, do you th- is it Prince? I'm just going to say I literally had the same response. I didn't put it that well, but the only people I know in my life who also can a lot of vegetables are Sarah's parents, who are the two nicest people I know in the world. And you go downstairs in their basement and they got shelves of of salsa and tomato sauce and, and all this stuff. And you're watching this movie going, seriously, in this household, who is devoting that much care and effort to canning vegetables it's it's a real it's the real mystery of purple rain i'm gonna say i hope it's billy sparks he ran out of room at the club and this was part of his deal with prince is i'll let you play if i could do my canning in your basement apartment i'll buy it i'll definitely buy it so any closing thoughts on purple rain or did we just do it i think that's good i i had a good time with it glad glad i got to see it (laughs) that's all you can really ask for purple rain available on demand also i believe for free if you have a Netflix subscription. Am I right? That's right. Okay, so you can do your Purple Rain 8 from 84 homework if somehow, like Josh, you'd gone all these years without seeing Prince's story. More about our 8 from 84 series is available at filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84. Next up, we will discuss Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club Encore. That's the director's cut version of the movie that had a limited theatrical run last year, and it's another blind spot for both of us, so I know we're excited about it. Yeah, we are. Are we going right to the director's cut with this one? Is that the plan? I think so. I think we are. I know you'll probably want to argue about it behind the scenes, and we can discuss it, but I think it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I I do lean towards the historical record, but, you know, time is of the essence sometimes, so we'll see. It is available on demand on most platforms as well, and again, filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84 is where you can see our complete lineup. Josh, that's our show. That is the show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. That's where you'll have to go to that profile page to find my uh, live tweet of Purple Rain. <laughs> oh, that was fun. You can also vote in Film Spotting Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s final four matchups. That's all at our website, filmspotting.net, where you can also find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And if you want to order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. 
To subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Next week on the show, it is the first entry in our Christopher Nolan overview. We're going to love saying that every single time. His 1998 debut film following, and we're going to get to the second film in our Betty Davis marathon, 1938's Jezebel, directed by William Wyler. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.